Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky. This is episode number 205, featuring an interview with alchemist Phoenix Aurelius. Occult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership site that aids us in the cause of informed, authentic, and accessible interviews about Western esotericism. Thank you. Because of your support, we're able to bring you recordings of this caliber and many more to come. Now, in episode number 205, an interview with alchemist Phoenix Aurelius. You can find Phoenix online at www.phoenixaurelius.org. That's P-H-O-E-N-I-X-A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S dot org. Phoenix Aurelius has been practicing alchemy since he was 16 years old. He is accomplished in laboratory alchemy and the study of the alchemical tradition, creating medicines, treating clients, and teaching the royal art. Phoenix is also devoted to organic and biodynamic agriculture, which informs his alchemical practice. His mission is to help integrate alchemy into the social fabric of our culture to inspire transformation and conscious evolution of both ecology and humanity. It was wonderful to speak with Phoenix after following his work for so many years. I was especially intrigued by his challenge to the generally accepted hermetic correspondences based on his own research. I think this is a profoundly important subject and hope his openly discussing it here allows for greater examination of the presuppositions in Western esoteric practice. It was also quite fascinating to hear about Phoenix's work using intrinsic data field analysis. The accuracy of the process that he describes is quite surprising and is definitely cause for further investigation. I support the work of Phoenix Aurelius by purchasing his products and services. You can do the same and help support a Cult of Personality podcast at the same time when you go to www.phoenixaurelius.org slash question mark R-E-F equal sign Occult of Personality or just click on the link in the show notes or Phoenix's logo on the side of the Occult of Personality website and then make a purchase. Both he and I will definitely appreciate it and I think you'll be impressed with the quality and efficacy of his products. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos. And the outro music is The Alchemical Tree by William Zeitler. Phoenix Aurelius, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to speak with you. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this interview. But before we get into it formally, maybe you could just let people know who are listening if they don't already who you are and what you do. Sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So my name is Phoenix Aurelius. I run the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy. And for the last 15 years, uh, I have been teaching and studying all different types of uh, alchemical practices and specifically focusing on Paracelsianism and diving really, really deep into uh, the works of Paracelsus to be able to find out what type of validity uh, his anti of disease and his medical cosmologies and astrological cosmologies and other different types of things like this have in the modern day. And I've been using some very forward thinking types of uh, analysis like intrinsic data field analysis, which is a branch of uh, radionics or psionics would be another name for that. And uh, in order to continue my research, I rely 100 percent on uh, on the public to be able to fund my work if they find that it's important. And so I have a website where I have an enormous spagyric apothecary and I offer uh, Paracelsian 
IDF uh, wellness research uh, for clients who want to self-fund their own wellness uh, work and see what it would come up as within the scope of Paracelsian uh, cosmology and, and try and address it that way as well, as well as um, the offering education. In fact, education has kind of been my bread and butter for the last 15 years. So uh, those are kind of the things that I do and yeah, how I've been doing it. Excellent. At least at this first part of the interview, really, um, I want to talk about what you had proposed, which is that maybe the classical system of correspondences that we're familiar with, hermetically speaking, as you put it, may not be accurate, may not even be particularly valid. I'm curious how you arrived at this conclusion. Sure. So I, I would actually, that's a really great question. And that's something that I think is really relevant for us to be creating a discussion about in the modern day. Um, here's, here's kind of the thing, more than a conclusion, it's more of like a working hypothesis. Um, as we know that any, any tradition that stays stagnant or, or stuck in its tradition ultimately doesn't grow, it doesn't evolve, and it doesn't end up lasting the test of time. Um, Primarily due to the Rosicrucians, we have a system of correspondences that are used in modern day alchemy that may or may not actually have any real basis to them in the modern day, especially in the light of more modern science. And so even though the system is working um, or that it has worked historically uh, for many different alchemists and spagyrists, we're now facing a lot of different types of issues that are that, that need to be addressed. Like, for instance, on the traditional uh, or the tree of life, uh, as we would see it as passed on by uh, by Jean Dubuis and also taught by Frater Albertus and things like that. There's a seven planetary system on there. There's ten sefra. There's seven planetary system with chokma uh, belonging to uh, the entire zodiac or the entire cosmos. And then you have Binaz, Saturn, and so on and so forth, uh, until you get down to to uh, Malkuth, where you, where you have Earth uh, and the four elements kind of being embodied. Within that system, the system of correspondences shows that there are seven days to the week, that there are seven traditional planets, that there are seven traditional metals that were worked with in alchemy, even though you know antimony isn't accounted for inside of that seven. Uh, and that's a major one that needs to be accounted for. Um, and a number of other different types of correspondences that have led me to think like, well, hey, what about some of these other planets, especially Uranus and Neptune, that are also along the ecliptic that work inside of, uh, you know, our, our planetary knowledge today? How do those fit inside of the framework? And there are some diagrams of the the Kabbalistic tree of life, or Otschayim where we see that there is indeed, um, you know, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto as the, the top three uh, sephira, the tree of life. And, you know, there's just, there's some interesting correspondences that people have drawn and tried to fit in and make work, but nothing really seems to add up, especially like, for instance, if we were to say that every planet is actually, has a governance over a particular metal here on the planet, well, then what does Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto govern over? And if that's the case, we know that there's about, now this is uh, kind of debatable in the scientific community, but there are about 91 different metals. And uh, there are a bunch of noble metals. Uh, the majority of what historically we're calling noble metals have very little to do and very little crossover with the actual noble metals uh, as we would identify them in science today. And so in order to come up with a more perennial way of looking at things and things that actually work with our modern scientific knowledge in order to keep the tradition alive and not just this antiquated relic of, uh, you know, something that has been practiced for a long time, we really need to begin to discover how do these things fit into alchemical cosmology in the modern day? How can we work with them? And are there applications of, say, working with tellurium or platinum or you know, many of these other metals, titanium, et cetera, et cetera, in ways that are still alchemically relevant, even though our ancestors did not necessarily have access to them or access to ways of smelting and refining and working with them alchemically. 
And also, what does the system of correspondences, if anything, actually look like? And is that something that we can shed and have the work be still as efficacious as it actually is, uh, just as, you know, speaking for its own merits? Or is it something that's very intimately tied into uh, this narrow band philosophy that was created during the late uh, Middle Ages and Renaissance? And I think that that's something that we really need to explore and we really need to be questioning in the modern age. Well, the way you explain it, I, I would have to say, I think your assessment of the situation is certainly valid. Um, you, the questions you ask are definitely valid in my mind. Um, and now, and, and correct me if I'm mistaken, but um, I had some understanding that um, maybe some of the evidence that you'd seen through your practice um, had, had led you to also believe that, you know, other, that some of these correspondences, you know, may not be correct or we may need to look at them again. I, I don't know if there, that there's any sort of specific data that you can share or anecdotes that might illustrate this more fully, but it would be interesting if there were. Cool. Yeah. So in 2015, I think it was late 2014, but really my research kind of engaged in 2015 in this and continued through 2016. I took on a large number, somewhere around 50 um, wellness clients uh, performing uh, wellness research. Now, Paracelsus, being a Paracelsian, I look at things in a pretty radical way. Um, even today, modern alchemists probably wouldn't have gotten along so very well with Paracelsus because he wanted uh, things, you know, if, if I could sum up the Paracelsian way of looking at things, it was basically the proof is in the pudding. And he used to say things like, you know, the astrologers of the day didn't really know their head from their ass and that they were, um, you know, they were entirely wrong. Their, their system of astrology was entirely wrong. But at the same point, there were four pillars of spagyric medicine. And one of those was astronomy. It's uh, astronomy, alchemy, virtue, and physic were the four pillars upon which spagyric practice uh, as a medical practice uh, is actually based. And so it seems really funny that at one time he would have said, hey, listen, you guys don't know what you're doing. And at the same time said that astronomy is really important. He also said that he would cast the quote unquote astrological practices of the fake uh, physicians into the sea of Pilatus, as he phrased it. And this is basically the sea of forgetfulness, meaning that people will no longer really be able to uh, remember what they were doing because what he was doing was so much more superior. And he advocated more or less that people should be using uh, what we would now refer to as a form of sidereal astrology. Um, and that that actually lines up with with astronomical practices and anybody else who is calculating using what we would call today, tropical astrology is not really paying attention to the to the position of the planets. And so, you know, again, like he said, you know, he would bring up things a lot. And he said, you know, thoughts create a firmament of their own. I'm paraphrasing, but it's very his quote is very similar to this, that thoughts create a, a firmament of their own. And from that firmament rises new arts and new sciences. But they're upheld in the astral plane by an egregore because people are feeding their energy into that by by their belief systems, by their thoughts and by their emotions. And so thoughts have a way of attracting a certain gravity and holding a certain um, weight to them that can make things so even if they're not perennially true. And that is kind of the way that I look at tropical astrology is that it's very much so imaginary in terms of the positions of the planets and the actual positions of the constellations from any geocentric position on Earth, regardless of topography. And it, all it takes is, you know, practicing a little bit of astronomy to be able to notice that there are enormous discrepancies between what we're seeing in the sky and where the positions of the planets are in, in tropical astrology. So I engaged in 2015 to 2016 into a study with wellness clients 
um, because Paracelsus said that the number one cause of disease is actually what is sometimes called enzastrale or enzastrorum, which basically means the cause of disease or the origin of disease due to the stars. And in that, he said that there is definitively a cause of disease that happens as a result of the stars, but not at all the way that modern, or at his time, that modern medical astrologers were looking at it. And having studied Judith Hill's system of medical astrology myself, um, I was familiar with that Renaissance system, very familiar with it and had used it. And, you know, I was performing some research with it. And so with my wellness clients, what I would do uh, during this time period was cast a tropical astrology chart and then formulate eight spagyric medicines for them every single month based on all of the transits that I could see happening that month uh, in comparison to their natal chart. And at the same time, I would also try and predict which days they might be experiencing, say, a flare up of certain problems or, you know, be a little bit more aloof or other other types of things like this. And my results were only about 60 percent accurate at best with tropical astrology. And um, uh, simultaneous and concurrent to this, just a few months after I began this uh, research, I had contacted one of my friends uh, named Timothy Wilkerson, who wrote uh, the book Alchemy Astrology, Lost Keys to the Philosopher's Stone, and runs the website alchemyastrology.com. And uh, Tim had talked to me um, at, around that time saying, you know, I actually was using tropical astrology for a long time because this is the way Frater Albertus trained us to do the laboratory count. And what he figured out was that he had a lot of discrepancies that were unaccounted for when he was using tropical astrology. So over a 20 year period, he finally became aware of, of Western sidereal astrology, still within a, a 12 zodiac and 30 degree uh, uh, zodiac system. And he started performing uh, that form of astrology and then would go back through all of his lab notes over the last 20 years and started casting all of the charts differently and saying, okay, if I would have used this, were, would these results have been accounted for? And what he started to notice was that all of the lab notes that he had would have been completely accounted for if he was using that form of sidereal astrology. And so I, that piqued my interest. And I said, you know what, I'm going to start using this inside of my research studies. And that's what I started doing. And uh, going into sidereal astrology led me into uh, what most people would just now refer to as Vedic astrology, which is exactly uh, exactly like tropical. The only difference is, is that we are counting uh, the positions of the planets in a more, more realistic way to the actual uh, signs that they're in. Um, but there were still some major discrepancies. Um, I was maybe having, I went from about 60% accuracy in my predictions to about 80% accuracy in my predictions. But that really still wasn't good enough. And so I kept searching and I, I even tried to, at that time, create new different charts uh, based on the new cosmological models that we have today and understanding that orbits are actually elliptical and that things seem to be vortexing through space and so on and so forth. So I tried to create astrological charts where they were a spiral or where they were an ellipse and the mathematics just weren't really lining up to the data of the International Astronomical Union. Uh, which was kind of my gold standard to compare the actual positions of the planets and the constellations uh, as as observed and agreed upon by peer-reviewed scientists and astronomers uh, into a system of astrology. And that's when I found Athen Chimenti's work of uh, MasteringTheZodiac.com and started um, looking at his software and looking at his videos and looking at, at other things that he was producing. And then everything kind of came into focus for me. Uh, doing that. And when I started doing that, then I increased my prediction rate to about 95% accurate with some fluctuations uh, being things that I couldn't really foresee, like uh, barometric pressure, for instance, is one of the things that will cause a flare-up, medically speaking, uh, in all sorts of different people. It causes more joint pressure, so people that have arthritis or other things, people who are prone to headaches or migraines, those types of people will have flare-ups uh, due to barometry changes, and, and none of those changes were necessarily indicated by the astronomy or the astrology, however you want to phrase that. 
And so I only had about 95% accuracy in my prediction rate, but that was still, for me, a huge upgrade from the 60% that I had before. And uh, since then, I've been using uh, traditional sidereal astrology or what, you know, Athen would call, quote unquote, true sidereal astrology or what I would call uh, sidereal astrology that is congruent with uh, International Astronomical Union data um, inside of my work. And I have a much greater success in making very, very potent works of, of uh, in, in the production of items of, of spagyric pharmacopoeia as well as working with my uh, wellness clients who have ancestrale. So that was kind of really the birth of how I started to realize, you know what, there, there's something off here. And the very first thing that I noticed was that obviously I had to take into account the positions of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, which are not included in the traditional uh, uh, medical astrology work from the Renaissance, of course, and also that there's a 13th, you know, zodiac sign or a 13th constellation, which we would know as Ophiuchus, and that that needed to be accounted for both in medical astrology as well as in lab work. And that was something that was a very hard reconciliation for me, but always, you know, seeking out truth and trying to go deeper with things. It was something that I needed to figure out and, and to, um, be able to incorporate into my system so that I could be as accurate as possible for my clients. That I could applaud you for your efforts there. I mean, it's not always comfortable when we pursue the truth. In fact, it's never been for me. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I think you deserve credit for that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah. You mentioned this IDF. Uh, is that the right term? Yes, yes. Can you talk more about that and how that fits in with your the rest of your work? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2018, I became aware of what is now called uh, IDF investigation. IDF uh, is an acronym that stands for Intrinsic Data Field. And uh, the principles of intrinsic data field go back, you know, thousands of years. All different types of healers, seers, mystics, psychics, etc., rely on intrinsic data fields to be able to gather their information uh, about anything. I mean, when we're using the doctrine of signatures to determine uh, what kind of healing qualities a plant or mineral or animal has, has uh, part of what we're tapping into is the intrinsic data field uh, of that material and being able to see through correspondence what type of uh, planetary rulership, et cetera, that that thing might have. But to put it in, in more modern language uh, and, and more science-based uh, terminology, I think Rupert Sheldrake was the one who probably described what an intrinsic data field is best by talking about a morphic field or a morphogenetic field, which is an emanating field of energy that surrounds everything that contains all of the data about that thing uh, that, that you're observing. So if you're observing a fingernail, the fingernail itself has its own intrinsic data field. But if you are taking a look at the finger, the fingernail is just part of the intrinsic data field of the finger. And if you take a look at the whole hand, the finger and the fingernail are just individual uh, intrinsic data fields that are part of the entire data field of the hand and the hand of the arm, the arm of the person, so on and so forth, in this very fractal and holographic way, which meets perfectly with the concept of as above, so below, and fits very well into the hermetic paradigm. Um, anybody who's ever performed dowsing work or uh, any form of divination, really, is actually working with intrinsic data fields uh, by any other name to be able to access the information that they're working with. It just so happens that there's some very awesome instrumentation that has been developed in the last, you know, 100 years that interfaces with electronics to be able to do this in a very precise way that is measurable and quantifiable on a numerical scale. And so the, the work that um, I did was introduced, or, you know, the work that I perform was introduced to me by a fellow by the name of Richard Kirby, 
who uh, was was utilizing some radionics equipment or psychotronics equipment. There's lots of different ways of discussing uh, the equipment. Some people call it radionics, some psionics, some call it psychotronics, etc. But it's a way of utilizing divination that interfaces with um, specific and kinesiology too. So it's like a, a kinesiological divinatory system that that interfaces with computer software. And the instrumentation that I use is called the SE5 2000 Gold, and uh, it's created by the SE5.com people uh, living from Vision. And it's one of the most dialed-in approaches, so it is very simple to use. There's an amplitude knob uh, that you operate with your left hand, and there is a stick pad or a precision stick detector, depending on which version of this that you have, that uh, you operate with your right hand. And the stick pad actually goes back to um, uh, tribal shamanism in a part of Africa. And I, I actually forget which part of Africa this originated in. But the shamans would essentially put a, a, take a sick person and put an herbal cure that could possibly work next to that sick person or have that sick person hold it in their hand. And then they would use this wooden block that was very finely sanded down and they'd rub their fingers uh, two of their fingers from their right hand on the block. And if their fingers did not stick to the block, then basically it would indicate that that herb was not a match. And if their fingers would stick to the block, uh, as they would rub them in a circular motion, either clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on the practitioner, um, then they would say that was the herb. And they had a very high success of finding the herbs that were necessary in that particular tribe to be able to cure people from the diseases that they had. So it's, it's a very ancient practice. It dates back over 2000 years, the concept of the stick pad. The only difference is that we're using these with modern electronic equipment uh, to be able to give us uh, calibrated readings so that when we use an amplitude knob on the left-hand side, we can rate things uh, on different numerical scales. Typically, I use the 0 to 100 scale, but I could do 0 to 100,000 if I wanted to. I could do 0 to, you know, whatever. I could I could calibrate the, the numerical amplitude however I really want. Um, so that, for instance, if I'm asking yes or no questions, I can perform investigation and I can see if uh, something is true, things between 0 to 40 would be a no, 41 to 70 would be a maybe, and 71 to 100 would be a yes, with items near 0 being oh hell no, and items near 100 being like oh hell yeah, you're very, very hot, you're right on the money. Um, and so I do investigations like that, and I can also take a look at the intensity of uh, various conditions uh, that, that clients have within the cosmology of uh, spagyric medicine. And so it gives me a way of being able to produce data as uh, as alternative as it might be um, to be able to either confirm or deny certain suspicions or conditions that uh, one of my wellness clients might have or to be able to find out what the proper methodology might be uh, in approaching lab work, uh, which is really important because in the alchemical literature, there are so many double blinds, uh, so to speak, that are thrown into the work that even the authors themselves will oftentimes say, like, if by the grace of God, uh, you're able to find this method, even though I've written about it, you know, uh, then then you are meant to perform this work. And a lot of times the literature is very deceiving in that there are uh, processes that are either omitted entirely or thrown out or whatever. And some of that takes experience, but uh, some of that also takes split testing. And that's been a huge part of my work over the past 15 years in the laboratory is split testing every method that I can get. Which method works best? Does this method work best or this method or the, that method? And so by utilizing intrinsic data field technology, I'm able to actually ask those questions ahead of time so that I don't have to, quote unquote, waste my time performing all of those individual split tests, you know, multiple different ways. And instead, I can narrow it down to maybe two or three ways that I want to split test the material to find out what the result is going to be ahead of time. And so it's uh, basically, you know, people on, on this channel, listeners on this channel should be very, very well aware of divinatory systems and how to use divination, geomancy and other things like that very properly. And IDF is just another method of those that in my own experience uh, trumps the accuracy 
of any of the other divinatory systems that I've used and, and provides us with a numerical accuracy that we can kind of draw in upon and use as data points. That's fascinating. Um, does the, the person you're working with or the client need to be physically present for, for you to do this? Hey, that's a great question. I forgot to mention that. No, actually, um, they can send in a hair sample or a blood sample or urine sample, or what I choose to use is just a good, high-quality, well-lighted digital photograph of the individual. Okay. And um, basically, uh, a radionics instrumentation is really just composed of a few different things, a few different basic components. So they all differ in the way that they uh, are assembled, but they all have principles by which they're built. So the first thing is called a witness well. And the witness well is basically a plate where you either place the photograph or the hair or the sample that you're going to be uh, analyzing, whether it be a spagyric or, you know, a body fluid or whatever else that it is. And then the second thing is, is that there's either a dial or multiple dials. So in radionics history, there's, you know, in the UK, they have three dial systems. They have two dial systems that are really popular. Uh, the unit that I use is a one dial system, but I can perform as many of the different dial calibrations as I need to using this one system because of the interface of the software uh, that I have that, is, that, that makes this unit really, really cool. And, and for me, kind of the pinnacle of radionics technology in the modern day. Um, but that being said, uh, the dial is something that's really important. And then the stick pad is the other thing that's really important. And those are really the three primary, uh, principal pieces that need to be, uh, on any piece of radionics equipment. And so anything that you can fit in the witness well can typically be analyzed. Excellent. Well, that's really interesting. Um, I'm not at all familiar with this, but, uh, it it does sound very intriguing, especially when you start talking about the, you know, the accuracy rates. Um, so, yeah, very interesting. Probably worth further investigation by people who also find this interesting as I do. Um, well, it's funny that you say that because that's exactly what I'm trying to bring to the modern day. So for instance, myself, um, I, I've had numerous different cases where I was really, uh, in a bad way or that one of my loved ones was in a bad way. And, uh, when I first found Richard, my fiance at the time, uh, who's now my, my life partner, my, my wife, she had a very, very severe condition that we didn't know what it was. It was some sort of, uh, I think if we would have gone to a modern, uh, conventional Western doctor, they just discarded it as like, uh, irritable bowel syndrome or something like that. And they, it, you know, but alternating. And so it wasn't always consistent. It wasn't Crohn's disease. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't all these things that they had identified, but they didn't really have a, a solid diagnosis for it. We went to naturopaths. We went to Ayurvedic practitioners. I myself, having studied and made remedies for years and, and focusing on alternative nutrition and alternative health, had tried to work on this issue so many times uh, over the, the, those period of years. It was like six years or, or something at, at that point. And uh, when Richard contacted me, he actually wanted to use a valerian spagyric of mine to, uh, he just wanted a picture of it in order to be able to test the efficacy uh, that the valerian spagyric would have over a valerian biodynamic preparation, which is known as BD-508, uh, for the purposes of agriculture when put into a vortex uh, tea using Stephen Storch's um, biodynamic vortex brewer. And I thought, uh, this is kind of over my head. You want a picture? What, what are you talking about? I've always been very scientifically minded. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take an intrinsic data field reading using a quantum scalar device in order to be able to determine what the uh, what the efficacy is going to be in this agricultural application here. And I was just kind of dumbfounded. I didn't really know what to say. I said, OK, well, <laughs> 
how does this equipment work? And he just explained it probably significantly less eloquently than I just explained it to your listeners or our listeners here. And um, I still didn't quite grasp it. And I said, so you can analyze anything from a photo that doesn't really make sense to me. He says, yeah, well, yeah, everything has an energy field. The photo is just, you know, it's like the it's like the address, uh, the picture of the home on Google Maps. OK, if you give me their first name, and their last name, that's like the address. But then I have the picture of the actual unit of the house, too, just as if you were to pull it up in Google Maps. You put in the address and then you can see it and then that's definitely the place that you're looking for. And I just thought, okay, well, I understand that concept, but that seems kind of far-fetched. So I said, you know, before I send you any of these spagyrics, I just want to test the accuracy. And if you'll put your money where your mouth is, I have, and I just told him that this was a client. I didn't tell him that she was my partner. Um, but, I, you know, I've got a client that basically has a very mysterious disorder. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I want you to determine what is going on and what is causing the issue. And he says, well, I'll do you one better. In 24 hours, I'll tell you not only that, but how to fix it. And I just thought, huh, okay, well, we'll see about that. Well, it must have been about 19 hours, and he contacted me back with an email with a spreadsheet that had all of this data showing very in-depth endocrinological problems uh, stemming primarily from the hypothalamus pituitary axis, but that was particularly affecting the pancreas inside of that axis. And that this was creating a carbohydrate metabolism disorder that was storing sugars, and then her body would flush in order to get rid of these sugars. And he said, it looks like she has a digestive upset of some sort that would probably cause alternating bouts of diarrhea. And my jaw just about hit the floor. And, you know, over the six years that I'd been working on that, over all of the doctors that we'd gone to, nobody ever considered that this could be a carbohydrate metabolism disorder or anything with an endocrinological response. And so I asked him, you know, well, what do we do about it? You told me that I, you tell me how to fix it. And he says, yeah, well, I've got this interesting drink here that she needs to drink. It's uh, this quantity. And I forget the quantities. I can look it all up, though. I've done this before for other radio shows where I explain this, too, is that um, they gave her a, a suggestion for a drink uh, with moringa powder water, lemon juice, apple cider vinegar, sea salt, uh, specifically Celtic gray sea salt. And uh, I think there's one other ingredient in there, if I'm not mistaken. And he says she just needs to drink that daily in this amount. You know, these quantities of this of all of these ingredients go in there. And at the same time, she needs to be put on what we call IDF broadcasts. I said, broadcast. OK, so you can analyze people. But what are these broadcasts? And he said, well, basically, since I found the frequencies that are causing the, the ailment or the, the condition, what I'm able to do is I'm able to send these frequencies to her morphogenetic field or to her intrinsic data field in order to be able to balance them out and to heal from the uh, level of the energy field down into the physical. And having had a big background, a very heavy background, in energy medicine in my own life, I thought, okay, well, that's interesting that's interfacing with the computer, but let's go ahead and try it. Well, after, after you know, Nori had known me at that point for six years, but she had had this condition for closer to 10 years. And after having that condition for 10 years in less than 60 days, the condition entirely disappeared. And so that was my introduction to all of this. And after he did that uh, and, and she was healed, I, I willingly gave him pictures of every single one of the spagyrics that I had in my apothecary and said, you have permission to use these basically however you would like, because this is really amazing. And over the next couple of months, we created uh, we worked together and collaborated and created what I called the uh, spagyric wellness intrinsic data field wellness program where I did the same thing that I did with my astrological clients years before. But instead of just working with astrology, I now had a way of being able to determine whether things were due to ens astrale, ens veneni, ens naturale, ens dei, or ens spirituale. And so this gave me data where I could classify what the origin of the causation of disease was from a spagyric perspective and start performing uh, research in a, in a semi-clinical environment to be able to figure out and even to address 
uh, the problems that my clients were were uh, interested in in having researched. And as of today, uh, I no longer work with Richard uh, because I purchased my own instrumentation and I have performed all of my own IDF work since the beginning of this year, actually. And so I have just been continuing that process and working with three clients at a time until I completely solve all their issues. And once I do that, then we move on to the next three clients and just keep doing like that. And not every issue is very straightforward. Sometimes it takes a lot of trial and error and investigation, but it allows me to vet out the of the philosophies and the theories of Paracelsus and to be able to separate what Paracelsus said that they would uh, have have done during his uh, era and also what later Paracelsian physicians would have done and to be able to see if the same spagyric remedies or items of spagyric pharmacopoeia will work and if so, how they need to be made or prepared and if there are particular dates or star influences that they need or whether we can just clear it up entirely using intrinsic data field technology. That's pretty radical. Um, it, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I would I'm, say so. I'm kind of shocked, <laughs> to be honest with you, because it sounds so much more um, thorough and uh, and probably accurate compared to you know the typical experience, like going into the doctor's office. And getting prescribed something, and I mean, what you're talking about is really uh, highly customized and individualistic because every person is like a so they're a living being. So it's not like a, an assembly line process where you're like just fixing a car, yes. which is what it often feels like in you know modern medicine. So I, you know, I Absolutely. feel like, again, I like applaud you for what you're doing because, um, your approach and your methods, uh, I mean, only you can speak to, you know, the effectiveness of it. And it sounds like it's in, in some ways probably more effective than most, you know, typical medical approaches. Well, I have to be careful in talking at this early stage about the efficacy, but what I can tell you is that I have well over 150 clients from the last couple of years who would be willing to uh, vouch for the accuracy of what's going on. I get some clients who will say, hey, I've got some problems that are going on with this and this and this. The doctors don't really know what's going on, but they we've done some blood work. If you could do some tests, then that'd be great. I'd run some tests and it would come back and match exactly what the blood work was saying, but it would also go into more elaborate detail. And, and typically, not with all cases, because I don't have a 100% success rate, uh, especially when I was working with Richard, because Richard, uh, you know, here's, here's the true thing about IDF work is that you as the operator have to be a very clear channel. So in the program software that we use for the SE5-2000, there is uh, what we call intake clearances. And the first thing that I have to check is what my uh, own bias is, or if I even have a bias towards what the results are. And ideally, I set my own standards for that, that I have to be at 95% or above in having absolutely no biases. But the software itself, when they teach you how to use it, it needs to be at 85% or above. Otherwise, you're going to start to get distortions. So, you know, just like any divinatory system, you could you could mess up or kinesiological system. You could definitely mess up and provide results that justify what you're looking to get. But if as the practitioner, you can stay as an open channel and I always perform meditations. Like I said, I have a huge history of vibrational medicine, background work, kinesiology, et cetera, et cetera, inside of my uh, own professional field. And so I've been utilizing uh, various meditations to balance myself, to clear my, my energy field, to call my energy field back into my body, to stay in the center of my head, to be able to ground off thoughts and emotions, um, and just to be in a neutral state of observation too, awareness-based observation as opposed to attention. And uh, all of those things make a big difference as the operator. And I've been able to show this multiple times just in my calibration tests, where if I'm not in those spaces, 
it's hard for me to to get a good calibration reading. But aside from just the biases, I also have to check to see if there are any sort of interferences. I have to check to see what my energy purity is, the operator is. I have to see if there's barriers of rapport between myself and the client that I'm working on and so on and so forth before I can even undertake the work. There's uh, about 12 different intake clearances that I have to pass. Um, otherwise, it's not a good time for me to take that reading. And either I have to wait till a later time or just give a refund to the client and say, you know what, the barriers to rapport are just way too high here or the, the interferences are way too high. Maybe you live in a zone that is bombarded by various electromagnetic frequencies that could alter the results instead of, you know, being wrong and risking the data. I'd really just rather wait until or unless you uh, get into a situation where those are not going to be variables that could impact these results. That doesn't happen very frequently, but it has happened uh, during the time that I've been working on these things. So uh, being, being a clear channel is really important. But along with that, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get enough data to be able to write some very compelling case studies on some of the most uh, important and lesser understood medical diagnoses that exist today. For instance, genetic disorders are what things are, are oftentimes chalked up to as genetic disorders uh, and, and other types of conditions like uh, Hashimoto's. Uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, for instance, is one of those really, really big ones that, you know, we know that there's heavy metals. We know that there's autoimmune responses. We know that there's endocrinological response. We know that there's some genes that come into play, but nobody scientifically has really been able to crack that code and figure out how to heal it 100% of the time in, in various clients. And what I've seen with the various clients that I have is that it oftentimes comes down to treating it on the level of, uh, of the origin of causation. And this is why I work entirely outside of the scope of modern Western medicine because I need to find out which of the five Paracelsian entia of disease does the origin of causation really stem from. And in many cases, it happens actually as a result of ens astrale. Ens astrale sol and ens astrale luna are very, very, very important, as well as ens astrale mercury. Ens astrale luna, though, is very, very key and critical because uh, Luna deals with the distribution of neurotransmitters and hormones. And so if there is a problem of Ains Astrale because of disease due to the stars based on the position of the moon at the time of birth, and it actually has less to do with the position of the moon, Greg, actually, to be perfectly honest with you. And it has much more to do with the position of the north and south lunar nodes and which one is retrograde and which one is station direct, because always one of them will be station direct, one of them will always be retrograde, and they're always 180 degrees apart from each other. And so um, at the time of birth, that's like a snapshot of that person's astral energy emanation. And as the moon changes its position and those north and south nodes change their position, if they are at, say, a square or a semi-sextile, or there are a number of different conditions that I don't have all memorized at the top, off the top of my head that I found. If they, uh, let's say that your north node was stationed uh, direct in cancer, um, and your, or, you know, let's, let's actually use uh, the Pisces-Virgo uh, axis. So if the north node was stationed direct at the time of your birth in Pisces, and there exists... Uh, the at any given point in time the north node station retrograde in virgo that opposition is actually going to create ancestrale luna for instance and that's going to create an imbalance in the astral energy field and because the astral energy field actually informs the etheric energy field and the etheric energy field informs the physiological energy field and the density in the molecules and cells and electromagnetism that fund all of that uh, all of that physiological development there ends up being a break in the chain of command that can cause diseases in the distribution of one or more uh, neurotransmitters or hormones or both. And it can do other things, too, with uh, uh, what are they called? Basal blasts, which are a type of white blood cell. There are these types of, of relationships that can be created by Enzestrale Luna, depending on the individual, Phoenix? depending upon 
their astral snapshot and, and various different times mm. and rotations and transits uh, of the planets. And, and like in the case of, of uh, the moon, the lunar nodes. And this creates a predisposition to the astral body losing mm. out on some of its energy field and being able to cause diseases down the line in the physiological body through the, the mechanism that I'm I explained earlier. Sure able to... Well, Phoenix, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you tonight. And I thank you for your time and your patience and sharing with us some of your work because it's fascinating and groundbreaking and really interesting. So uh, maybe you could just uh, remind people where they can find you online. Uh, thank you so much, Greg. Um, yeah, so people who are interested in checking out my work can find me at phoenixaurelius.org. That's P-H-O-E-N-I-X-A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S.org. And, uh, you know, I 100% of my work is all uh, publicly funded. And so people uh, who are interested in keeping this tradition, keeping my research alive, uh, learning more about my findings and so on and so forth, they're the ones who make this happen. And they do that by purchasing uh, items from my Spagyric Apothecary. They do that by uh, contributing and, and funding their own IDF wellness services. And they also um, do this by participating in the education that I offer. Uh, I do one-on-one -on -one sessions uh, where you come and study with me for three days at a time in the lab and it's kind of like a cooking show. So I have every different piece of the puzzle already made in advance and, and you get hands-on time doing every part of it, but then you don't have to wait for all of it to finish. Uh, you, we just are able to move on to the next part. And I have group study opportunities. Next one's on September 5th, in fact. Uh, where I'll be teaching essential oil and hydrosol, uh, professional essential oil and hydrosol distillation work. And I've got a few others throughout October and November this year. And then uh, I've also got a teachable course, uh, online courses for those who are interested in studying in the privacy of their own home. Um, currently, I've got a free introduction to uh, spagyric theory and cosmology out that uh, anybody can take. And then I also have a complete course called Spagyria 1010 that is a little bit over 40 hours of coursework, uh, minimally 40 hours of coursework, um, that walks a person through how to make a really high-grade, professional quality spagyric tinctures, essences per circumskindo, and, and spagyric elixirs. And uh, currently I'm also working on 1020, 1030, and my transpersonal alchemy course as well, all of which have been filmed, just not uh, finalized with all of the text and stuff. So all of those ways are ways of supporting my research. And, uh, you know, obviously I don't just ask for handouts. I like to give people something of substantial value in return. So uh, just go ahead and, and visit the website, see if you feel called to anything. And if you do, you know, I thank you in advance for all of your support because, it takes a lot of time and effort and energy to be able to go through historically and read and translate the old texts, especially Paracelsian texts, which are in German, and uh, to be able to perform this work on the level that I'm doing it and to split test things the way that I do. So, you know, it's like I say, it's all 100% publicly funded, and I appreciate all of the support that I receive. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would encourage people to support your work. I support your work myself. Um, I buy your products and people can find a link to your website on the sidebar of occultofpersonality.net and help support you that way um, and support me at the same time. So uh, I appreciate your work as well. And um, I expect that other people will as well if they haven't already, because um, the things that I've tried have been really exceptional. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me tonight. Oh man, Greg, it is absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for your support personally, and also for having me on the show and being able to, you know, spread the word about what I do. You know, we put $0 into our advertising effort just to be, you know, we don't accept investors. We don't accept, you know, money for, I don't even think we're applicable for grants, but we don't accept money from grants or other things because I want to keep the, the mission completely pure. So I really appreciate opportunities like this to come and speak to new audiences and, and be able to get the word out about what I'm doing. So I really, really, really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. 
So, as you could probably tell, we had some connection issues toward the end of this part of the interview. But rest assured, we re-established the connection and successfully completed the second half of this fascinating and revelatory conversation which you can find in the Chamber of Reflection. So listen to that second half of the interview at chamberofreflection.com or at our Patreon at patreon.com slash occult of personality. I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts in the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash occult of personality. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks and I salute you. Thanks for listening and until next time.